Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter and today I'm joined by a gentleman called Andy Slee who uh, we've had a long relationship of coaching, working together and I've seen him go through a journey which is immense and it's, it's just a privilege to, to get him to tell his stories today. And what you'll get here is what I would describe as a raw view of what it takes to be as successful as Andy has been. But to hear about the physical, the mental challenges of doing that from his move from working in Accenture through to on the strategy side to moving to China, to taking on his his Asian role, Asian role in terms of being the MD for the Asian business of Skyscanner, and then his move into ClearScore. Um, and those three chunks of his career, which he'll talk about today, have their upsides, massive upsides, and it's been an incredible journey, but also the downsides, as I've said about the physical and mental side. So um, you're going to hear a raw ver version of that today, but a great story that uh, I learned so much from, and I'm sure you will today. I'm delighted today to welcome Andy Slee. A good old friend from we go way back in terms of time and also experiences. So Andy and I first engaged in a, a coaching relationship a while back now. I'll let you, Andy, tell the story a bit more. But welcome and thank you for taking the time. I'm sure what we're going to talk about will resonate with a lot of people listening today. Thanks, Colin. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Right. Well, why don't we kick in to maybe just give people listening a a chance to understand a bit about you. Why don't you tell us a bit about you and your background? Yeah, sure. So I suppose I had a fairly traditional start to my career, came out of university and like many people, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I actually got met at the front door when I got back from university by my dad with the job section of the Sunday Times and told me there's this company called Anderson Consulting, you should apply. So being a dutiful son, I did. And then I ended up spending over 10 years there doing all sorts of strategy consulting and spending a good stint of my time over in, in Asia. I spent five years in Beijing helping build out the Accenture business over there. And then I realized that I didn't want to be a management consultant for the rest of my life writing PowerPoint. I actually wanted to to do something rather than provide reports for other people. So I, I jumped ship and that's when I made my move into sort of the, the really exciting tech space, joined Skyscanner in Singapore, became their APAC general manager, which was hugely exciting and a real ro roller coaster, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And then since then, you know, I came back to the UK about four or five years ago, ran corporate development for Skyscanner before that business was sold to C-Trip. And then I'm now the COO at a fintech business called ClearScore, which I joined about four years ago. And ClearScore is a business that is all about democratizing people's access to their own financial data. So we're all about helping people understand their finances through their credit score and report, which is going really well. We've, we've scaled now to about 12 million users around the world in UK, South Africa, and Australia. So it's uh, it's been great fun so far and still, I think, a great journey to go, I think, on the latest one. That's great. I, I resonate with a few of those things. I remember our Skyscanner conversations and how that worked. I'm interested to go back to the parents and, you know, the Sunday Times and hand it over and, and Anderson Consulting. And for those that maybe are a bit younger than we are, and the Anderson Consulting was Accenture, is Accenture now, but was it originally Anderson Consulting. So tell me about that point where, because I'm the same, I... 
took my advice of my parents and went and joined Anderson at the time, no, Anderson Consulting, but Anderson, and became a tax consultant, which I look back on now and don't regret because it's I'd be more wrong. But it was a it was a change for me, and very quickly. I only had lasted eight months. Tell me about that that choice to go there and how it impacted you. Yeah, the the choice to go there. To be honest, it wasn't hugely well thought out choice at all. Now, I only applied to Accenture. In the meantime, while my application was going on, I took a job working at the Lord's Cricket Ground Cricket Shop. So I was a very avid cricketer. So I kind of put it to the back of my mind and I actually remember the the interview process. So I'd, I'd ended up applying for an internship there. At the time, they were doing a great program for sort of people who just graduated. But when I went to the interview itself, they put me in the wrong group and I ended up going into the full graduate interview process being completely unprepared and they, they called me up I remember and they said we've got some bad news you, you didn't make it into the full graduate program but the good news is we'd like to take you into the internship and obviously I kept pretty quiet and didn't tell them that I'd actually that's what I'd applied for so it all worked out quite well but at that point everyone that was joining Accenture was being sent up to Newcastle learning to code and being part of a big project that Accenture had sold to the UK government source out their pensions back office essentially and and I, I I just wasn't interested in that to be honest you know probably a bit of a, a, a wrong decision I, I decided that coding wasn't for me I mean gosh imagine if I'd done coding instead I probably would have been much better off but um for some reason still unknown to this day another sort of piece of serendipity in my career I got myself and another lady who is now the COO at a business called iWalker also a fintech business we got pulled out of the room and said do you want to move into the strategy side of the business because you don't really seem that interested in coding. And I thought, God, thank God for that. Otherwise I would have quit. And then once I got into that side of it, I really enjoyed it, but I always was restless in terms of wanting to find where the real growth was. And really that's how I ended up taking a pretty strange career path. You know, I, I ended up working in the office of the CEO, writing his speeches for when he went off to various conferences and events in Davos, you know, the World Economic Forum. I got to go there and hang out with some very interesting people. And then I put my hand up to go and work in China. Went and met the CEO of the China business quite cheekily when I was over there for a trip and said, look, I'd love to come and work over here for you. Thinking he would say, well, who do you think you are, quite frankly? And he said, yes, that sounds like a very good idea. So about three weeks later, I was on the plane to Beijing not knowing anyone in the whole of China other than the CEO of our business and not speaking a word of Mandarin. So that was an interesting sort of dropping me in at the deep end. I mean, that, that was fascinating. I mean, uh, now I get how good you are at putting together presentations and everything else just because that's where you started it. But talk to me about the the move to China, because like, that, that is huge. And it's it's a brave decision because I've moved to France in my time and that was that was different enough for me from the UK to France. But to go to China... I'm working there. How did how did that go? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a real culture shock in many ways, but I think it came from the reason I went after it was I'm super competitive with my brother, so he'd already moved to New York. So that obviously, you know, in back of my mind, there was something saying we need to move somewhere even more crazy or fascinating. So there was a little bit of that in there, but when I got there, I think I'd hugely underestimated just how big the cultural shock would be. You know, I remember going out to a restaurant, I didn't know really anyone, and it was it was quite lonely for the first few months until you established some kind of community. I remember going out to a restaurant on my first or second night there next to my hotel thinking, it can't be that hard. You know, they've got pictures in the menus. And I, I went in, sat down on my own, 
which is quite unusual in China. I found out to be eating on your own anyway and pointed to a few pictures on the menu and the waitress said something to me. And I thought, it's a bit strange, but I'm pretty sure she's just checking what I want. She kept sort of pointing back at the menu. Mm. And uh, it turned out that I'd actually ordered enough food for about 10 people. So I'd ordered <laughs> a, a whole fish about literally the size of the table and a number of other dishes. And they, they kept bringing them out. And all these very friendly Chinese people just kept pointing at me and laughing and smiling at me. And, you know, that was a, a great way to sort of to start my life there. From a business perspective, you know, it was a great time because China joined the WTO. So, you know, it was really opening up an amount of investment and money pouring into China from multinationals trying to work out how to navigate it was was huge. So we were really able to to ride that wave. You know, my Mandarin unfortunately didn't improve dramatically, but my understanding of Chinese business culture certainly did during the, the time that I was there. And I ended up making some great friends over there and, and actually also met my wife over there. So it's, I've got I hold Beijing and you know, it's great memories for me. Yeah, and and that would obviously set you up for a sky scanner and what you took on after that. So, what what learnings did you? Because you talked about serendipity, you talked about imposter syndrome, and and there's a growing piece as you go through this. So, what was going through your head about your your learning at that point? Yeah, I mean, when I joined Sky Scanner, my learnings were great in terms of the foundations that I had from consulting. You know, that I would never say to people not to go and, and do some consulting because you, you get these great foundations that you can go on and, and then apply one of your sort of superpowers is that you can be chucked into any room. And I think consulting gives you two things. One, you can really learn stuff quickly. So you can pick up things in a conversation and play those things back to people, make sure you, you're really grasping the nettle of what's going on. And then I think the, the other thing that you can pick up from consulting is strategically you're able to see the wood from the trees. And, and when I took over Skyscanner in, in Singapore, it was very early days for their Asia operations. There was a team of 10 people there. And they put in someone from the UK over there. And he'd done a really good job of building out a very small team. But there was no real strategy. It was just, let's put something in Asia and see what happens. And so I was able to go in and start to try and lay out a bit more of a, a roadmap of how we were going to take something that was you know, sub 1% or 2% of revenues and try and turn it into 20% plus of global revenues over the following couple of years. Mm. Tell us a bit about Skyscanner for those who don't know it. I'm sure they will, sure. but let's, let's dip into that a bit. Yeah, so Skyscanner is an online travel business. It was founded back in the early 2000s by three guys who were all at university together in Manchester, who used to go skiing quite a lot. Back in the day when EasyJet and Ryanair were quite early in their sort of development. And Gareth Williams, the CEO, built Skyscanner to work out which was the cheapest way to get to the slopes at any given time. And it was really, I remember seeing it again, somewhat another moment of serendipity. My old manager at Accenture was, was actually friends with Gareth Williams. And I remember looking at something over his shoulder one day and going, what's that? That looks, that looks cool. And he explained to me what it was. And I just sort of put it into the back of my mind as that's something that's really going to, to work because there was just an explosion of options when it came to booking flights out of the UK and, and into Europe. And so, yeah, Sky's kind of grew over the course of the next sort of 10 years into a huge, huge business with upwards of 100 million monthly active users around the world using it to, to book their flights. And it's it's a great business that got sold. You know, it's one of the sort of great UK tech success stories, I suppose. Got bought by a Chinese business called C-Trip for about one and a half billion pounds. 
back in 2017, I think it was. So yeah, it's a great business. Amazing story. And it was, as I said, it's out of Scotland, wasn't it? So it's that's right. that connection into Scotland, which obviously is my background. I love that. So let's dig into to Skyscanner Asia because that was some of your, probably your biggest development, your biggest stretching and your biggest learning. In there. Just tell us some of the peaks and drops in there. Yeah, it was a it was a huge stretch for me to be honest. You know, I persuaded the leadership team that I wasn't just someone that wrote reports and and did powerpoints. That I really had what it took you know, to execute on some of this stuff. And at the time, I had almost no evidence of that. So they, to be fair to them, they took a massive punt on me, which I'm you know really grateful for. I remember turning up the first day and as multi small multi multicultural team. What they built was essentially a business in Singapore and a small office that was trying to build Skyscanner across 14 markets in Asia. So so what my predecessor had done quite sensibly is go out and hire 14 people for 14 different nationalities from those markets, which you can do in Singapore because it's so, so diverse. But I remember going in on the first day and sort of laying out my market. You know, this is this is why I'm here. This is what I'm going to do. And in, internally, I remember just thinking, Christ, I, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> and then what, what do I do next when I sit down at my, my laptop? What am I actually going to do? The big sort of jumps that I made were quite early on, I, I, I realized that there was a choice to be made at Skyscanner in Asia about where the opportunities lay. And there was an easy option and a hard option. The easy option was to go after the English-speaking markets where you could take a, a British brand and it would probably be quite easy to transplant it into them and there would be decent money to be made. So, you know, Australia, New Zealand, to a certain extent, Singapore, Hong Kong, you, know, you could take those on and, and you know, we were doing pretty well there already. So it was just a case of continuing on that path and maximizing the opportunity. But the really big opportunity was going after the North Asian markets. You know, look at the size of the population in those English speaking markets is probably 30 million. If you add up China, Japan, South Korea, you're looking at 1.5 billion people. So from that perspective, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? But then you look at just the complexities of operating in those local markets, the regulatory challenges, the language, you know, just taking a, a skyscanner product and turning it into a website with Chinese or Japanese characters versus the Roman alphabet. You know, that in itself is a big challenge that we had to take on. So I went after it, but it took, took some persuading of the leadership team that that was, that was the right thing to do. And it was a really big balancing act in my first six months, which was trying to build my credentials with the team in Singapore and convince them that I really understood, you know, the internet economy and how it all worked rather than being a, a boring management consultant and <laughs> try and get to know them, but also persuading the leadership team back in the UK that going sort of the go big or go home strategy was the right one. So that was always a tough balancing act, actually. And we're talking about a number of playgrounds here. So first was your your China playground to go off and do the consulting piece and learn and you know eat more than you could should be doing at the time in that restaurant. And then the next playground was taking on a role that was massive. But there's a there's a bit of a history in there in terms of you doing that and taking on roles, going to Davos and other places. But this is a specific playground because my experience of working when you're out working out in Singapore or Asia and you have bosses back in the UK, it's a difficult balance. So disconnected. Talk to us a bit about that and how, you know, they took a punt, go big or go home, but there was that connection piece back to the UK. Yeah, I would say anyone who's working in an organization that has operations in Asia should really 
think carefully about how best to to interact with them. You know, the, the time difference in itself is so challenging if you're operating at the leadership level in Asia and every single important conversation you have is at four o'clock or later in your day when you've been up, you know, since eight, nine o'clock running at everything. I always found that pretty challenging. And then you had the sort of the, the connection points, which the classic seagull management, everyone that's in a an outpost, so to speak, in whichever business, you know, the managers can can fly in shit and leave. That's always a challenge that you you get. And so I had to really, in the early days, you know, find the right balance between making sure that the business didn't stop just because the CEO or the COO was coming in, but also making sure that we had we had our story together and that the you know the team were all singing from the same hymn sheet and we were very clear on what we were trying to do. And it, to be honest, it didn't we didn't always get that balance right. And I had to build relationships with people who, you know, looking back on it now, were under a huge amount of pressure from the board. You know, we just taken money from Sequoia. We had some Mike Moritz come onto the board who had just gigantic expectations. You know, taking money from amazing VCs is one thing. That's the, that's the easy bit. And then you have them on the board and you know, their expectations are nothing less than the 10x of a business is, is worth being involved in. So, you know, I, I probably at that point didn't really understand the best way to interact with you know, the, the top two or three people in the organization. And I've, you know, I've learned a lesson from that. Now I'm in that position myself. I think I'm much more understanding of of our GMs in our different markets and the different pressures that they're under. Two things I've got in my mind. One is how was your imposter syndrome doing at that point? Because it, it had reared its head earlier on and now you're in the position of that pressure, that part. Yeah. yeah, how was it? Oh, it was horrendous. You know, I, I remember going to travel conferences early on in, in my time at Skyscanner where you know, not only did I really not know much about running a business, but I didn't know much about travel either. And I didn't know any of the people who all seem to know each other, by the way. And it's a very sort of, <laughs> it's a very friendly sector to be involved in, but you have to kind of break into the, the cliques. Certainly in, in the Asia travel business, there's a couple of networks there that are awesome once you're in, but looking in from the outside, you're it can be a little bit overwhelming. So that was the time when I, you know, I did my first ever speaking at conferences. And I, yeah, I remember doing one in China at this huge conference with sort of a couple of thousand people in the audience and, and just being up on stage with these luminaries of of Chinese travel organizations and just thinking, Christ, what, what am I doing here? But actually, after we're coming off the stage at the end of it, thinking, wasn't that really fun? As As often is the case, once you've done these things, you look back and go, that was, that was, I'm so glad I did it. But in the run up to it, I think I was probably physically shaking. But once on the stage, I don't think anyone would have known that I'd been nervous. So you just have to push yourself and, and go for it. But those early days were very tough. There's a bit about the nerves and dealing with it and the pressure and the stress. And, you know, our relationship started then. So we were getting to know each other. There was a cost to you physically as well as mentally at that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I was doing every other week, I was flying long haul to Beijing or Tokyo, where we were building out our businesses. We did a couple of really big deals quite early on. So we bought a business in China, which ended up essentially being a bit of a reverse takeover. We we handed over the reins of our Chinese business to this fantastic guy called Stephen Pang, who had a business called Yobibi that we we built. And in Japan, we set up a joint venture with Yahoo Japan, who, of course, owned by SoftBank. So there was a whole load of work to do there. But I just didn't really, I didn't prioritize anything other than work because I was so desperate to prove myself. So despite what people think, when you work for a business like Skyscanner, there's no great prices that you're getting on seats. So it was economy class all the way. 
night flights, you know, keep the costs down low. And I was, I was sat in these seats, you know, with my laptop. And unsurprisingly, I ended up with a really bad back. I slipped a disc in my back and it got to the point where just standing up, sitting down was okay, but standing up again from sitting down was just agony. And I, I pushed it as hard as I could. You know, I kept going into work. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, would sit me down to say, you, you're completely mad. What are you doing? I said, like, well, I have to be there. I have to be there for the team. And I ended up having back surgery. And I was out for, I was supposed to be off for a couple of weeks. But of course, what I did, again, still suffering that imposter syndrome and needing to feel like a, a leader meant being present, I rushed back to work because the COO was in town and I wanted to to see him. I remember having this meeting with him where he was talking to me, but I was, I was still pretty high on the painkillers. And I just had the complete sort of mental break of what was it? What's he asking me? You know, why am I here? Yeah. And then he said, look, you need to, you need to go, and, go and rest. And that for me was a real wake up call. And at the time, my wife and I, we were thinking about whether we were going to need to do IVF. And I remember thinking, gosh, there's a real irony here that perhaps this IVF thing is it going to come good for us and it's going to work. But I won't actually be able to pick up the kids because I won't be able to get out of bed. And, you know, that was a real wake-up moment for me. Yeah, we all have our wake-up moments in our lives around physicality and, you know, the energy and everything else. But the back is probably one of the worst things, particularly in a traveling role, as you say. But also just, as you say, looking at the family. So it's a tough yeah. time. So, so thinking about that next stage and taking that on and what you learned from that experience, what would you say are maybe the top two or three things that people could pick up from listening to this about what you learned? The number one thing for me was you have to be yourself. Hmm. Before you started coaching me in particular, I remember feeling like I was going into work and putting on an armor putting on someone else's shoes because I was I was trying to be what I thought the senior leadership team in the UK wanted to see, which was, you know, my predecessor had probably had a relationship with the team who were all very young and ambitious and fun-loving that was probably a bit too close. And so I went completely the other way and ended up being someone that I'm not. I was slightly aloof with the team. You know, I created a bit of distance between myself and them. And it was tiring. It was incredibly tiring. You know, I miss that oxygen that I get from the banter in the office, you know, the, the, the quick chats and the conversations that have nothing to do with work, whether it's what you did at the weekend or the latest film that you might have seen. I cut myself off from all of that, which is a real shame because I didn't develop the personal relationships that really what working in these types of organizations is, is all about. It's uh, the irony of, of the imposter syndrome is that you end up being an imposter in a different way you're, you're not if you're not being yourself you're pretending to be someone else mm. and it it really takes it out of you so I think authenticity would be the number one thing that that I learned and then the second thing that I learned which you were very helpful in educating me on is this idea of being fit to lead mm. you know I, I just sacrificed everything at the, at the font of sort of this idea of your career and you know your ego is very much wrapped up in going from one thing to the next and desperately looking for the recognition and the, the pat on the head, particularly when you create a, a parent-child relationship with your, your boss, which mm. is something that I, I definitely had desperately looking for the, the well done Andy thing. And as soon as you get that, then you're on to the next, how do I get that next bit of recognition? And now you know, I, I'm not looking for that. I'm very much, com much more comfortable in my own skin. You know, I think that's, that's been a long journey for me to go on, but, but now, 
I feel very much like I'm an authentic leader and at ClearScore, the culture is all about bringing your whole self to work. So I bring my sense of humor. I allow myself to, to have fun. I'm still you know, fairly direct with people, but I think people see me as, as approachable and the real fun loving Andy side is there as well as the serious. Let's, let's get stuff done. side. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating for people listening. They're hearing a confident person gets up and speaks in front of 2000 people, does all this, moves to China, builds strategy, goes to Davos, all of these things, and then has this relationship of almost adult child or child adults to bosses. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was going on? Because there was a there was a, an epiphany moment that we were sitting in Edinburgh three quarters through a coaching session, and you said, "Yeah, I get it now." What happened at that moment? What did you see? Yeah, I think. I mean, there's there's probably a whole sort of bit of therapy we could go into here about mm. why people need recognition and where that comes from. But I think that moment in Edinburgh was very much that I don't need to prove anything to anyone else. It's it's really very much how I judge myself is what matters. And at that point, you know, I think you played back a few things that I, I had managed to achieve in my career, what I'd got out of it and what I potentially provided to some other people who I'd worked with and mentored and, and brought along on the journey with me. And at that point, I just had that realization of this, there's nothing that I really need to to worry about or mm. to prove with what I've done. It's more about how do I take what I've done so far and find the next thing that I'm going to enjoy and get something out of rather than continually being on this cycle of having to, to justify what I'm doing or having to prove myself to, to someone else. And that was just, a, I remember feeling this huge weight of expectation fall away mm. from my shoulders. And I think you and I went out for dinner that night and I had a good bottle of wine. I remember getting home and just having a chat to Sissy, my wife, and just saying, you know, for the first time in probably a good 10 years, I actually felt fully satisfied with where I was and what I was going to do next. Yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great clarifier. I can't say that it's, I've never slipped back into that kind of behavior. I think it comes in different cycles, doesn't it, depending on where you're at. But if I keep coming back to that point, you know, of achievement, whatever that is, I think it, it's super helpful to, to not keep grasping for things that you may or may not actually need to do. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people would say, sail your ship out of the harbor rather than just as a leader sailing around the, the harbor, playing with the sails, the team playing and, and playing at leadership, getting it out and going to the rougher seas is something you've, you've taken some risks, you've gone and done. And actually just getting to that point where Almost you could filter it and say, well, I'm not going to do that again. But actually, you do do it. It's about learning what you're good at and authentic at, yeah, and that you're comfortable. And then you're having fun in, I think, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's changed dramatically since my earlier days in my career where the, the bets I, would make, I was making, you probably heard it when I was talking about how competitive I am with, with mm. my brother. That was coming from a place of, I need to do this to prove something to someone and and now it's I, I do things because I want to do them. You know, I, I joined Clear School because I, the business really resonated with me. You know, it's a fantastic business that's built around this idea of making finances calm, clear, and easy to understand. And that mission just resonated with me. I left university, to be fair, having had a, a fantastic time and a lot of fun. But I left university with a huge amount of credit card debt because no one had really educated me on how the credit industry worked. So I, you know, I, I just racked up debt. And you know, I got into a whole load of trouble with it. And that's when ClearScore came along and Justin, the CEO, tapped me on the shoulder. And I think, you know, 
life's too short to be working in organizations where the mission doesn't resonate or the product that you're creating or helping to create isn't doing something that you believe is really doing the right thing by the customer. So yeah, I think whatever I do next, I'll be much more judicious about choosing those things that I can really get out of bed and feel excited about. Mm, agreed. And there's some great work in Clear Store. So, you know, I, I, I'm privileged in my role that I get sneak peeks into what people do in businesses. And one of the things I'd, I'd love to explore is this concept of music and film that you've used for, for what is a successful business to organize and create that energy in the team. Talk us through what you're doing in there. I love this sort of challenge of creating a narrative within a business. You know, I think as I get more, as I grow as a leader, I've realized that. 80% of what you have to do as a leader is about creating the right narrative and getting people to understand the why and the what as much as the how. So at ClearScore, we've introduced this concept of strategic imperatives, which are things we publish at the start of every year. We get together every January, do a big kickoff meeting, and we announce our, our sort of four or five strategic imperatives for the year. And the first time we did it, we used the, the power of film. So for each of our imperatives, there were there were five film posters that we'd made. One of them was around personalization. So we called it the tailor and we had a whole sort of mini storyline and we had a, a tagline of, you know, using the voice of the, the sort of the, the people that do the trailers, you know, what was this film all about? And people just really buy into it because you know, everyone loves a good movie. And if you can boil down your strategic imperatives to something as simple as a, a movie poster where you've got what it is, what we're trying to achieve and what are those key performance indicators and you stick that on the wall in the office or you make some stickers for everyone's laptops, people will just constantly refer back to them and remember them. And every time I stand up, I can talk about the film. You know, this year we turned it into, into a music albums. You know, I, I love my music and I thought, what's the, another way to build on the film concept? So we did five albums this year, but we, we used some popular music. So this time we... You know, we have an imperative, which is to turbocharge our flywheel. So we use the Daft Punk tune, Stronger, Better, Faster. So, you know, every time we, we talk about that, we play that tune and everyone goes, oh, right, Andy's talking about that Daft Punk one. That's the, the flywheel one. And, you know, we have a, another one where we, we had the CEO singing the House of Pain, Jump Around for another one, which is all about jumping the S-curve and building our next sources of, of growth. So it really works. I have no idea what I'm going to do next year. I might have to move to Mime or something because I'm going to run out of forms of media. <laughs> Bottles of red wine, whatever, meals. Cooking, yeah, yeah but, that'll be something. But, yeah, so let's, let's just go off in a segue there. Top movie and why it resonates for you in terms of your story. If you had to pick one movie, what would it be? Oh, that is a good question. I'm quite into my gangster movies. I'm not sure if there's any good analogy that I could use to explain why it's something that represents my sort of identity. But I think probably if I was to pick one, it would be Goodfellas. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic movie. I think there's there's something in that sort of the early stages of that movie where he's being accepted into part of the sort of the, the closed organisation and, and, and how exciting it is and then how it quickly unravels i think that there's something in there maybe about how people chase their dreams and think it's all going to be fantastic and then quite often once you get inside whatever organization that you're trying to get into you realize mm, actually <laughs> this isn't perhaps quite as good as it looked from the outside so i think i've managed to drag an analogy out of goodfellas there for oh, yeah, there could be a whole podcast andy just on mafia and leadership and the linkage in there so anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's great and let me just segue to another one then. 
favorite music, if you had to pick a, an album or a, a song that you think is you, what would it be? What would be the, the one you pick? Oh gosh, that is a good one. I'm going to be, I'm going to go super cheesy here. And it was our wedding song, which we went with Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. I think that's yeah. a good representation of the way Sissy and I try and live our lives, which is just go for it. You know, it's hard when you go through the tough times to to remember these types of things, but when you're having a good time, you've got to really, really have a good time. And I think there's a line in there, you know, I'm having a ball. And I suspect that, you know, people who know me well, I, I tend to be glass half empty quite a lot of the time. Yeah. And so that's a helpful reminder for me that to really... When the good times do happen, you, you really have to make the most of it, as we've all discovered in the last year. I mean, if there's anything that I've learned from from sitting in a room on my own without any human interaction is just how lucky I am, you know, when the world does get back to some sort of normality, I need to make make much more of, of that luckiness and the position I'm in and the relationships that I have. I think that's, that would probably be the choice for me. Yeah. And just an update, children three? Yeah. The IVF did work. We were very fortunate to have twin girls who are now five, who are great fun and chalk and cheese in terms of personality. And then we just thought we'd throw another one into the mix. So we've now got a a three-year-old boy who's a real character. And yes, they've kept us on our toes during lockdown. And I have now got a lock on the inside of my study, given the number of times the kids have joined Zoom calls. But it's that's been the biggest blessing, isn't it, for everyone, I'm sure, with young kids, to just be able to spend more time with them. I think that that's actually going to be hard going back to work now and explaining to them that daddy's not going to be at home staring at a screen, talking to strange people. Yeah, they're great. I'm, and I'm very blessed in that regard. That's great. If you were to, to be sitting with your kids now when they're old enough to understand this, and have, you know, maybe one or two things that you've been wrong at and you would have points of view about that they could learn from, what would it be? Gosh, that's a good one in terms of, I'm I'm imagining myself with, um, you know, even more grey hair and sitting (laughs) slippers in front of a fire with a glass of red wine with my kids as they sort of get into the age where they'll actually listen to me rather than wanting to to watch TV or whatever. There's a, a number of things I would probably say in terms of being more wrong it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And taking those risks. I, mean, I think my parents came from a very different time where you know, my mum was the daughter of refugees, Jewish refugees that fled Austria in 1938. So I think you know that coloured her outlook on life, which was probably risk averse. And you know, my dad had his own business that had its ups and downs throughout you know, various recessions, he was in the headhunting game. So when the years were good, they were great. When it was bad, you know, there was, there was no money coming in at all. And so I think that created a, a bit of an a, approach within the family, which was very risk averse. And I, I've probably flipped that on its head and taken a lot of jumps off and, and taken those risks. And I, I think my advice to, to my children would be that, you know, you've got to decide what's right for you. you know, my brother's taking a more traditional approach to his career. Neither is right or wrong, but you've got to be true to yourself and do things that you actually enjoy and not just be in it for making sure that you can have enough money in the bank to support your family. Of course, that's that's important. But I think if, if there was one thing I would tell my children is that whatever career that you want to pursue, you need to go just go for it and not have any regrets. And we would, support in whichever direction that you go this isn't a quick aside now who's winning your brother or you do you keep telling (laughs) 
not anymore, only on the golf course where he's definitely <laughs> winning because he's uh, he's had a lot more time to play. I, I think he's probably settled down a bit now in terms of that competition, but there's still a bit of needling that goes on. And I think we're still, you know, you revert back to your teenage years, don't you? Whenever you see your parents, even when you're in your 40s, there's still a little bit of that behavior that when the Scrabble board comes out, it's still just as competitive as it used to be when we were young. But he was an amazing older brother, but particularly for me when I was in my sort of formative years, particularly when it came to sport, you know, he would he would bowl at me in the garden for mm. two hours and being the younger brother, I would do all the batting. And then I turn around after five minutes and go, yeah, I don't want to bowl at you, but thanks for the game. <laughs> and leave, him, leave, leave him. And that's why he always says I, I ended up being the better cricketer, but he was incredibly patient with me and you know, has, has always been a source of, of great advice. I've been very lucky to have people like him and others, you know, including yourself in my life that have been there as uh, people to chat to when these challenges come up as they often do. Yeah. I wanted to just bring the lesson. If you were a sissy and you were looking in at what we've just been talking about, what would she say about it? What would she say is the be more wrong and the learning from it about you? Ooh, she'd probably bring a long list <laughs> for starters. She would probably say that I didn't believe in myself enough mm-hmm. when I moved careers. Mm-hmm. And that caused me, you know, those problems that we talked about. There's that a great irony, isn't it, that people that are desperate for that recognition and are, are people pleasers, when they do hear those things that they desperately seek, they don't believe them. And I think that's the thing that she would say to me, you know, I, I'm one of these people that still now struggles with this idea of, of success. Well, what is what is success and, and how should we define it? And I think she gets continually frustrated with my inability to bask in any success that's happened and rather I want to move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that drives her slightly posse. And I think she would probably say that I should just chill out a little bit and smell the coffee every so often, as they say. Mm. But yeah, that's that would probably be the first few things on a on a long list, many of which I probably shouldn't talk about. No, I was just about to say, let's let's end that bit now. If she listens back to this, she can maybe just go on a podcast. No, I need yoga. Um Andy, it's it's been a real pleasure and, and thank you for being firstly very vulnerable on here. So that's one of the biggest things for me is the ability for others to learn from the likes of yourself who are, even though you don't recognize it yourself, successful in what you do about the journey you've taken. Thank you for taking the time and yeah, I look forward to hosting you back here on here at some point in the future to tell us the next stages of the, of the career and the story. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much for having me come. Wow, what a conversation. Thank you to Andy for joining uh, today and taking us through those three sections of his career. Uh, I'm always amazed but never amazed by his resilience um, and the brave choices he's made in his career to take it on. And he's an inspiration to me and I'm sure he will be to you listening about how he's tackled those and worked those. But I also just think that he's never finished. It's (laughs) the next part of his career and that's what I said at the end of this. I'm looking forward to hearing the next stages of Andy's career um, and how he starts to, to learn about the systems that he can put in place on his physicality, his emotional care um, that he takes to, to go with the courage that he definitely has. So thank you, Andy, for that. And I um, hope you enjoyed that podcast. I'm sure you did. Love to hear your feedback. Love to welcome you on to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon.